at some point. None of us can look back over our lives and say we are completely clean and we've never been sullen by the mud. All of us can confess that we've been there. Noted gospel recording artist Donnie McClurkin released a hit song in 2000 that sold millions of copies. The song was entitled We Fall Down. The whole song essentially repeats one refrain over and over again. Sold millions of copies. One refrain repeated over and over again. It simply went like this. We fall down, but we get up. For a saint is just a sinner who fell down but got up. I think all of us can relate to that. All of us, as we look at our lives, can relate to the fact that we are nothing more than folks who fell in the mud and then the Lord helped us to get up. While Christ in John chapter 21 uh, is central, as he always is in John's gospel, the chapter is mainly about a man who is reminded that he had fallen in the mud, but is encouraged to get up and catch his pre-appointed train that if he stayed there, he would miss. All of John 21 is referred to as the prologue. I'm sorry, as uh, all of John 21 is referred to as the epilogue, which means that it is supposed to serve as a comment or a conclusion to what has happened previously. Uh, The issue is that chapter 20, verse 31, seems to sum up all of John and serve as a fitting conclusion. Here's what John chapter 20, verse 31 says. It says this, But these are written that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. When you read that verse, it seems like there ought to be an amen that goes after that. Seems like that ought to close out everything. Uh, But then following that verse in chapter 20 uh, is this chapter, which has been described as anticlimactic. This anticlimactic chapter sparks varying opinions on why it's here, varying views on why it is where it is. In fact, in fact, why it is even in John's gospel, because it just don't sound like it's an epilogue. Sounds like an appendix. Sounds like an afterthought, because 2031 seals the deal. So that you can believe in Christ. John says, this is why I write. There are varying views on why chapter 21 is here. One of them says, maybe it's an anonymous writer who writes and adds this chapter later. Maybe it's not John writing at all. Maybe it's someone else. The other uh, view says, John wrote this chapter with the thought in mind of of tying up uh, some loose ends and pointing the way forward. Maybe it's John that writes. And it doesn't sound quite like it fits because what John is doing is John is tying up some loose ends and showing us, uh, the readers, the way forward as Jesus has come and risen. 
Uh, for me, the evidence seems to support the latter two of these views. I believe that John writes this uh, chapter. I believe that John has a specific idea and purpose in mind when he writes chapter 21. I believe that John is the writer. John seems to write, I believe, this epilogue for at least two reasons. As I read it, I believe he writes it, number one, to further confirm the fact that Jesus is indeed risen and is lovingly concerned about the well-being of his disciples. I believe that's one reason why John writes this uh, epilogue, this appendix, this what many have called this afterthought. I believe John wants to re-emphasize, yes, he is risen. And yes, he does care for you. Yes, he is concerned about what concerns you. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. But then the second reason I think John writes chapter 21 is to highlight the restoration of Peter. And for me, I think this is the main emphasis of chapter 21, to highlight the restoration, the redemption, uh, the getting up, if you will, of someone who had fallen down. I think it's the emphasis, and I think it's here at the end of John's gospel because I think that John thought like I thought that all of us need to hear a word about somebody who had fallen but was able to get back up. Because in life, if you live long enough, you're going to have those same kinds of moments, and you need to be able to look in your Bible see a story about somebody who had fallen miserably and who had failed miserably, but that wasn't the end of the story. I believe John says they need to hear about Peter. And so uh, in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, he begins this chapter uh, sharing the story of the risen Christ. He shares in chapter, in verses 1 through 14, about the risen Christ doing what Christ does. Remember I told you part of the reason why he writes is to reemphasize and to stress that Christ is risen. And I think he opens this chapter in the first 14 verses to show us Christ doing what Christ does. So what does Christ do? Well, first thing Christ does is he shows up. He sh- and, and you know what? That, that, that says a lot. We have a God who shows up whenever we need him to, right? So he opens this showing that he shows up. Then he shows us in these first 14 verses, not only does he show up, but he solves problems. Not only does he show up and solve problems, he also supplies needs. Not only does he show up and solve problems and supply needs, he says that I came to serve, not to be served. And just like he washed the disciples' feet in chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, we're going to see him serving the disciples in a way that we've never seen him serve the disciples before. Because he's trying to give them an example of what service looks like. So John opens this epilogue talking about the risen Christ, doing what Christ does. In verses 1 through 4, we see that Christ shows up. Uh, In Matthew 28, 7, an angel had promised that Jesus would meet his disciples in Galilee. And so the Sea of Tiberias, which is mentioned here, is another name for the Sea of Galilee. 
And so Jesus shows up just like he says he would. Peter and the other disciples arrive in Galilee and they decide to go fishing. They decide to go fishing on the sea. Uh, Because of Peter's gift of influence and leadership, uh, he first decides to go fishing. And then the other six disciples that are with him decide to join him on the fishing trip. Uh, there There are differences of opinion on why Peter and his disciples actually went fishing on this day. Uh, You'll find all kinds of opinions, everything from they had abandoned their calling to return to to their profession of fishing, Uh, everything from uh, they had nothing else to do to occupy their time, so they decided to go fishing. There was even one commentator who said, even though Jesus had risen, they still had to eat. (laughs) That kind of makes sense to me. That they still had a physical need. They still had families to support. They still had to provide food. So I don't know. There are some that, are, that take the negative side of this and says that these disciples had totally abandoned their call and their commission, and they had gone back to fishing. I don't know if I believe that. It may have just been simply that they needed some food to eat. Whatever the reason that they went, they went. They were fishing. They were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And they had fished, these experienced, accomplished fishermen, the the text says, had fished all night long. They had went to all the secret spots. They had used all the tricks of the trade. They had used all of the secret bait that, you know, we fish. I like to fish too. And I've got some spots. If you ask me where I went, I'm not going to tell you. Because I'm... I'm scared you're going to go to my spot and catch all the fish. In fact, I'm probably not even going to tell you what I used to catch them because I want my fish to be there when I go back to my spot. And if I tell you all my secrets, then my spot may be fished out. They had used everything that they knew about fishing, fished all night, went to all the spots, used all the kinds of and did not catch anything, a single fish. Then, just as the day was breaking, they noticed a guy on the shore. Now, it was not just a guy, right? It was Jesus, but they didn't recognize him due to the darkness and the fog that existed on the Sea of Tiberias. They didn't, they saw this guy. They didn't know it was Jesus. He's standing there, and that's what Jesus does. He shows up. And you'll see him, and he'll be there. And sometimes you may not recognize him like Mary Magdalene at the tomb, uh, but he's there. And they see him, and I don't know that he was disguised or anything. They probably just couldn't recognize him because the visibility was not good. But the fact of the matter is, regardless of whether they could see him and knew who he was or not, he was there. He showed up just like he said he would. I need to say to you that Jesus shows up. He'll show up in hospital room. He'll show up in courtroom. He'll show up in jail cells. He'll show up at your job. He'll show up at the bank. He'll show up at your child's school. Some of the parents ought to say amen. You know you needed Jesus when you went up there and talked to that teacher. (laughs) You got that email. (laughs) That dreaded email, you know. 
I haven't ever got one. I'm just saying. But, you know, you get that. You, you need Jesus to be there when you get there. Jesus will show up in your situation. But not only does he show up. Verses 5 and 6, uh, we see that he solves problems. In verse 5, out of concern for their well-being, he asks them a question that he already knew the answer to. Uh, he asked them this question, do you have any fish? And they say, no, he's, he is ready with a solution to their problem. He says to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. He has a ready solution to their problem. They don't know it's Jesus yet, but they have fished all night. They have done everything they know to do and they've come up empty. So why not give it a try? I don't know who this guy is, but you know, we, we are hungry. We need, we're desperate. Why not give it a try? It, it may work. Not only that, but there's also uh, this other fish, fishing incident from Luke chapter 5 that is resonating in the back of their mind when Jesus says to them, uh, lunch out to the deep. They, hadn't, they had fished all night then, hadn't caught any fish. Jesus shows up again and says to them, lunch out in the deep and cast down your net. And they uh, don't want to do it because said, Peter says, Jesus, we fished all night already. Why are you having us lunch out again? And they remember in the back of their mind, they're not sure this is Jesus, but they remember the last time they were reluctant to do something they were instructed to do. Jesus says, lunch out in the deep. They lunch out in the deep, drop down their nets, and they catch so many fish, Sister Martha, the text says that the nets broke. So they can't help but to remember this incident as they have fished all night again. And this guy on the shore is saying to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Can you imagine these accomplished fishermen saying, we've already done that? We've, we've tried everything. Uh, and so then he says to them, try the right side. Life can be full of empty nets sometimes. Sometimes we're guilty of casting our net on the wrong side and coming up empty. Jesus, though, is a problem solver. He knows where the fish are. He knows exactly where they are. It's proven to be true at the end of verse 6 when they follow Jesus' instruction and catch so many fish that they have to drag the net to the shore. Then, then, G John realizes as they catch all these fish, and I'm hurrying because I got to get to Peter, but I'm talking about Jesus right now. We're going to get to Peter, right? John realizes, the disciple that Jesus loves realizes after this miracle has been performed, this is Jesus. Only Jesus could do something. Only Jesus could tell us where to drop the net, and we drop it, and we catch all these fish. And so he says to Peter, Peter, this Jesus, Peter, with his self, with the way he does things. You know, Peter is kind of spontaneous. You know Peter, the one pulls out the sword and cuts off the ear. He, he acts in spontaneity. And so Peter, when realizing that this, John has said this is Jesus, Peter, rather than taking off more clothes, puts on his coat. How many of you have ever put on clothes to jump in the water? Text says that Peter has, I don't know if it really means that he, he was naked, but it says he, he was missing some stuff. He didn't have, he was working, so he didn't have on all his clothes. 
But when John says, Peter, this is Jesus. Peter just loses his mind and rather taking off more stuff. He grabs his coat, his outer garment. I don't know why anybody would do that. And he jumps in the water and starts swimming to Jesus because he wants to see him. Right? Jesus solves problems. And so Peter makes his way to Jesus. Uh, as he makes his way to Jesus, he arrives, and when he arrives, he finds Jesus on the shore. Uh, and he had solved the problem of there being no fish. He arrives on the shore, and Jesus is busy cooking fish over a charcoal fire. Uh, and as he arrives, he finds this. And the smell of the charcoal fire uh, likely reminded Peter of the last time he was around a charcoal fire outside the judgment hall when he denied Christ. But Jesus is there, and he has already showed up. He has already solved the problem. He's now supplied their needs with all these fish. And as Peter shows up, we find Jesus serving because what he's doing, he's, he's cooking for them. Then he invites them, come and have breakfast. I have prepared a meal for you. Jesus does all of these things for them. And then in 15 through 19, John highlights the restoration of Peter, who had fallen in the mud and faced the possibility of missing his train. The charcoal fire has already reminded Peter of his great failure. Now, after finishing his meal, Jesus asked Peter three questions, which served to jog his memory again. Three questions called to Peter's mind three times he denied Christ. When given the opportunity to, to profess his loyalty and love for him, Peter remembers that he denied Christ three times. And so Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? This question is likely better phrased. Do you love me more than these other disciples do? Because it reminds Peter that he had boasted that he loved the Lord and that he would follow him anywhere. And so Jesus calls to his memory and he says, Peter, do you really love me? And if you do, how much do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then two more times, Jesus asks the question, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter continues to answer, yes, you know I love you. The restoration, though, is not in the three questions, nor is the restoration in Peter's three responses to those questions, but rather it's in the threefold commission that Jesus gives to Peter. P Jesus says to Peter, he says, first of all, he says, Peter, if you love me, I have not given up on you. I have not turned my back. I'm giving you another chance. If you love me, he says, feed my lambs. He commissions him three times. He says, if you love me, tend my sheep. Then he says, if you love me, feed my sheep. The threefold commission is what restores Peter. Even though Peter had failed miserably, Jesus is still willing to entrust him with leading his sheep, he's given another chance. Most of the time in Scripture, 
The people we see who are highly exalted have always, for the most part, been first deeply humbled. I think we can apply that same prescription to our lives to know that when uh, we have been deeply humbled, it often makes way for us to be used by God in a way that we've never been used by God before. Oftentimes, God will humble you in order to prepare you for the next level. It's all throughout Scripture you'll find people that have had to experience this. Peter's situation reminds us that when we fall, we can get back up if we remember two things. Can I give them to you? Two things, if we remember them, we'll be reminded that we can always rise again. The first thing that we have to remember is the promises of Jesus. The promises of Jesus. Jesus had made Peter some promises. In Matthew 16, 13 through 19, uh, Jesus had asked a question. He had asked this question. And Peter had to be thinking about this. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Right? He asked that question. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied this way, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You, he says, are indeed Peter. You are the rock the stone. He reminds him in Matthew who he is. And Peter has to be thinking now that he is in a time of distress, remembering that he has failed Jesus, that Jesus is the one that named me the rock. I think we have to remember that Jesus has promised us something, who we are. But watch this. He makes him, not only is his name a reminder of Jesus' promises, he makes him some actual promises in Matthew uh, chapter 16. He says this to Peter. He says, Peter, I will build my church on myself and on your confession. I'm promising you that. What you just said, your, your conviction about who I am, your belief about who I am, and the fact that I am who you said that I am. On these things, I will build my church. And here is what helps Peter remember in his time of distress that he can get up again because Jesus says in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail no matter what happens. There's an opportunity for redemption. No matter what happens, there'll be an opportunity for restoration. He promises him that his church will be built on those things. He's promised us some things. He's made each of us promises. He's promised us that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's promised us that he'll always walk with us. He's promised us that and we know that all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord, those that are called according to his purpose. He's promised us some things. 
And we have to hold on to his promises in times of distress, even when it doesn't look well. He makes us promise. Not only does, do we have to remember his promises, we also have to remember his prayers. We have to remember that Jesus prays for us, the prayers of Jesus. All you need to do is look to Luke chapter 22. And in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus again is having a conversation with Peter. Right? And in 31 and 32, it says this, Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But here's a but for you. But I prayed for you, that your faith fail not. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He had prayed and interceded for Peter already. He had prayed and he had shared with Peter that I pray for you that in your time of weakness, no matter how weak you get, that your faith does not fail you. Listen, let me share this with you. No matter what happens, no matter where you go, no matter what you encounter, no matter what challenges you face, here's one thing that you can never afford to leave behind, your faith. Your faith has to be with you no matter what happens in life. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I've prayed for you that there's going to come a time where you're going to deny me, but I pray for you that in that time, that above all else, that you hold on to your faith, that you hold on to your belief, that you hold on to your faith. Jesus says, I pray for you that that would happen. Uh, he prays, he intercedes for him, uh, and likewise, he does the same for us. He has, let me, say, let, me, let me tell you this, when Jesus prays, it is done. You know what, you can't even do anything to change it. When Jesus prays, it's a powerful prayer. When Jesus prays, it has more power than our prayers. When Jesus prays, it is done because Jesus is God himself. And Jesus had said to Peter, I have prayed. And when we are in times like Peter is in, we, we have to remember that. But watch this. We also find another promise in Luke 22. So Jesus prays for Peter, and it helps him in his times of distress. But he also makes him another promise. Look at what he, look at what he says. He says, I prayed for you that your faith fell not, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He makes Peter the promise. The promise is when. You didn't catch that. Let me say it one more time. The promise is when. Okay, maybe it'll be a little clearer if I say it like this. The promise is not if. <laughs> oh, now you see, now you're with me. The promise is not if you are restored, if you are strengthened. It's not if, it is when. And I say to you that Jesus had promised Peter in Luke 22, you're going to face some difficult days. You're going to deny me, but you have a win date. You're going to come out of it. You're going to be restored. And all I can see in this text is that Peter's win date has now finally come. I don't know when your win date is. I don't know when my win date is. All I know is that Jesus has promised us that we have a win, not an if. And he makes Peter this promise. He prays for him 
and he promises him that you have a win. Uh, Peter got new direction for his life. He is then commissioned to feed the Lord's people because Jesus has restored him. He's been commissioned to feed his people. He is entrusted with the ministry of leadership in the early church. He is restored to his rightful place and is affirmed by two words that Je that from Jesus in verse 19, follow me. Jesus says, follow me. Peter has a train to catch, and he decides to get up out of the mud and catch his train. He is commissioned to the train of pastoral care, and we see him catch that train when he stands up and takes charge in Acts chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and beyond. I'm reminded of things that Peter says uh, to show his love and loyalty for Christ, such as repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded that he, when him and John met the man who lay lame at the gate called Beautiful, Peter says, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, I give to thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. I'm reminded that as he is restored and catches his train, Peter says things like, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I'm reminded that when Peter is threatened not to teach in the name of Jesus, he responds as he has caught his train with, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. If there is hope for Peter as a denier, if there's hope for Moses, a murderer, if there's hope for David, if there's hope for Paul, if there's hope for all of these who have fallen but got up again, certainly there's hope for each of us to get back up and catch that train that has been pre-appointed for all of us. Let's pray. Eternal God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that we have the privilege of being able to get up again. And thank you, Lord, that you have a mission a ministry, and a commission for us. We pray, Father, that you bless us to remember your promises, remember your prayers, and look to you in times of distress. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We would like to invite anyone that has a desire again to come.